Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geomologist Presents. This is going to be part of my continuing series of why you should play. And today, we're going to discuss why you should play Hyperborea. And with me today, I have a very special guest. I know someone who really loves Hyperborea on his YouTube channel. I think they're up to like 78 to 80 sessions. And that's Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep. Thank you for joining me, Daniel, to talk about Hyperborea. Well, thank you for having me. I like to talk that's great yeah so on the on the discord in the discord verse daniel norton is also called the uh it's a bandits keep empire so why what what platforms do you have what are you showing out there of your your uh your various creative works so why are you the baron uh daniel norton I am the Baron. All right, I have to move this over. Uh, so I am, uh, I guess I got involved with the Discord and everything through Anchor. So I have a podcast, of course. Right. Uh, I also uh, have a YouTube channel, which is what I was doing first. Two of them, if you want to. But one, I put the actual place that it's kind of an interesting thing because I, I, I'm not like a, some people push their actual place. I just kind of put them up there so people can like, watch. It's not really a, a main part of what I do. So I separated it into two channels. That's why I did that. Uh, plus, that way I can be called a meteor baron, so I can have more channels. But the other <laughs> channel, I talk more about philosophy and and kind of uh, the same stuff we talk about in Anchor, like about playing, not so much the actual place. And I find that works out pretty well. And yeah, we're almost at eighty. I think we're playing tomorrow to be session seventy nine in Hyperborea. Oh, nice. oh yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So uh, again, thank you for for joining me, Daniel. And uh, again, I said, like I said, we're going to talk about uh, the game Hyperborea. You might also know it as Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, it's on the third edition now, and uh, Jeff Telanian, the author, has shortened it to Hyperborea because uh, I guess you could say ass or ash uh, because the, the other, the Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is a mouthful. Uh, but what I was also going to say um, was that I will put all those links that you give me, uh, Daniel, in the show notes for your different uh, podcasts and YouTube. And you should definitely, I would say, just up front that you should go watch the actual play. Uh, Daniel has a really great group of players. He really runs, runs the games well. Um, they are not dull. Um, so I think the last one was uh, lots of burning giants and um, death and destruction somewhere in Vinland, I'm thinking. Um, in Hyperborea world, which we might get to. So let's, uh, the first, before I get into, like, I have like four points about why you should play Hyperborea, but I think maybe first we can talk about, uh, you could talk a little, little bit about your game, and then I can add in like the games I've played and or run in Hyperborea, and and kind of the reason why it's so exciting to me, because I've had good times in these games. Uh, tell us a little bit about your game. So I, uh, I picked up Hyperborea kind of, it was weird, when 2nd Edition went to uh, the Kickstarter, I saw it, and then I realized that it was going to be six months or a year, whatever, how long the Kickstarter takes, and I saw that they had a 1st Edition, so I bought that with the intention to run it, and then I never did. So I had the 1st Edition box set. Um, but when 2nd Edition came, and then Jeff Jeffrey does a great thing where like every year he kickstarts like a couple of modules, so I've been doing them and building them up because I'm like, I want to build a whole campaign out of these modules because they're you know a variety of levels. And that was always my goal. And I was going to actually run it. It actually works out, I guess. <laughs> I mean, good. One good thing about maybe the pandemic is that we got to play a lot more. And uh, I, I roped in a, the group that I played with online already. And we said, I said, we're going to start at first level. And we're going to run through all the modules. And we actually have at this point. We've run through every printed module, except for the one that just came out in, uh, in the, the new box set. Because that's first level. And my, character, my party is at uh, eighth, seventh, eighth level. They, uh, they've traveled all over the world. Uh, my initial thought was, this was, you know, reading things like Conan and some of that kind of stuff. Like, I love the idea of having, um, like, uh, serialized adventures, so things happen, and then it cuts away, and then it comes back. So that was my original plan, was that we would play, like, a, I don't know, five, six, seven episodes or sessions, and then cut away, play other games, whatever, then come back. But we've enjoyed it so much, we've been running continuously for, I guess, almost two years. You know, it's almost Amazing. 80 sessions because... Uh, because of you know holidays and sometimes people can't play and so on. So, but it's pretty awesome. I, I so I mostly I mostly run the the actual adventures right now. Though I'm homebrewing something. It's funny I have it sitting in front of me, which I guess we're going to talk about based on this, mm -hmm. which is uh, Dwellers in the Mist. 
uh, not dwells in the Mirage by A. Merritt, who is another one of the uh, the authors. I know we're going to talk about that. Uh, there's actually, if, if you read a lot of weird fiction, uh, well, uh, I, I'm jumping the gun here, uh, you see, and you look, start looking at the map, you can kind of see all these different places, which is really cool. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's, such a, it's, it's so great for that. But, yeah, we've been having a great time with it, and we're high level. You know, we're seventh, eighth level, and they're pretty damn powerful, which yeah. is cool. So do you plan to stop them or at that cap? I think it's 12th level. You think you'll get there at 12th level? That's a cap, right, in the uh, rules. Yeah. That's, just, I, that's I, an I aside. That's not on our plan. <laughs> but I just yeah, I don't... Um, oh, you're going to keep going? I'm not... Actually, uh, I guess, spoiler, uh, I'm this thing I'm homebrewing is, is going to be like a finale. Like, what, what happened was the, the last module we ran, it kind of ends in a really vague way. It didn't have, like, a big ending. And I thought, we can't be running a campaign for this long and have a vague ending. So... I said, let me homebrew something so we can have something that's got to really wrap up some of the conflicts that we've been building. Because even though I'm not running the modules, you know, uh, I'm throwing my own bits of lore inside to kind of shape the world. So there's this whole kind of background of things are happening. So I wanted to kind of have something that had a good, I don't want to call it an ending. So when this is done, uh, which I would imagine would be in maybe 10 more sessions, uh, then whatever level they're on is where we're going to stop. I'm guessing it'll be still level eight, you know, or nine maybe. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. So I got into uh, Hyperborea through Kevin Madison of Dungeon Musings. I joined a one shot. The it was like this sort of some some sort of number uh, echoes of Atlantis, or it looked really cool. It really held those touchstones for me about you know, sword and sorcery, Atlant Atlantean lore. You know, uh, via you know we'll get into that a little bit. But that's what I was drawn to, and I played this one shot. I really enjoyed it. And then he did another one shot. And eventually that led to this campaign that we have been playing uh, where, you know, is he uh, he made his own little pocket, uh, which you can do. It's already exists in the little in the world. He made a little pocket called Tule and he had a map and everything. And we we had started off doing sort of a hex crawl. We got into the politics of Tule. Uh, eventually we won ourselves a keep and then we 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 went through this gate that was in the keep and now we're somewhere else so we've been playing that awesome. for about the about the same time you know it's about the same uh, length that you've been playing your campaign and it's kind of i feel like it's on hiatus i don't know if it's permanent but we did get to seventh level and you're right seventh level is pretty pretty powerful like i play um an amazonian warlock iphigenia yes. contadoros uh, she shoots lightning bolts uh, she has a short sword and shield. Uh, she's as strong as the other uh, fighters. You know, um, it's been very fun. And uh, I've tried. Uh, uh, I, I've tried one campaign where, like you, I took one of the modules that started at first level and tried to run it, and that went pretty well. And it, unfortunately, it fell apart. I feel um, mainly because of scheduling issues for people, which, as you know, happens. But then I, I picked up another one and using, uh, you'd mentioned the new module, which is called um, the new module for the third edition called the Late Trapper's Lament. And I started running the new version of Hyperborea, which is the third edition. Again, we'll have all the links and titles and stuff as much as I can remember. Um, even the, the uh, novel that Daniel just mentioned, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And um, I ran that adventure and there's, I had a technical TPK. So they didn't they didn't die. I don't want to spoil too much. They didn't die, but effectively the campaign could have ended because of what happened. But what I've done is now taken inspiration from some of the fiction that we're going to talk about and that Daniel has already alluded to. That I took an inspiration from one of, from a, a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, and now I'm running this campaign that's now called Shadows Out of Vinland, where the characters had amnesia. They've gotten their memories back. They don't know where the hell they are. They're trying, they've been trying to figure out. And we've run a couple sessions of that, the reboot, I guess, after running uh, Late Trapper's Lament. And it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I, mean, I think I've, I've been able to, again, um, that's why I have Daniel here, using inspiration from what he has done um, to kind of string together some of the, the modules and some vignettes that are throughout the Hyperborea books and uh, put a campaign together. And I think that's what's going to be fun is being able to travel all over the world and have these adventures so i think and 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 the main in the same time the characters are trying to figure out what the hell happened in that missing year right so i think that's what's uh, gonna happen nice. so that sounds pretty of, awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of and it is kind of open table, uh, and I have two main players. But if people ever want to, you know, jump in, 
um, you know, we can end oh. the schedules, Matt. And I might even have, like, I was actually even thinking of, because um, since the other characters were kind of in limbo in one of the adventures, that if they hit that area, that these characters can come back as guest stars, if players maybe, if they have the time, can jump back in as guest stars. So, you know. That's very cool. And you can always do that. I think uh, I think the, uh, as we'll talk about, I hope you may, hopefully you all will get that impression that it is very much has that, uh, that old school sensibility and that you can do this open table, a West Marches style play um, because of that and because of what, how Jeff Talanian has created the world, I, I think, and how it's conducive to that type of, you know, jump in when you want to jump out. Like Daniel mentioned, he's doing this like kind of episodic serial type of uh, adventure game. Right. So, and I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've had the same players, I, you know, but uh, I, I'm, have they rotated or have you had new players? I guess that's a good question. I've had new players join and some old players have uh, stepped away for a bit, yeah. whether or not they get back in before we end. But yeah, it's really great. Uh, usually when possible, they try to do it between adventures. So it kind of makes sense, but you know, obviously schedules, as you say, but it's, it's really interesting. I say travel around cause it's such a really cool world. And I was uh this last part, I wanted them to hex crawl a little bit, you know, just briefly a couple sessions because we didn't really do that. A lot of times I do the the Conan thing where it's like, OK, a year and a half has gone by. You've been working for a shipping company and now you're in this new area when, you know, there's not work. So you guys are going to be ashore for three months, you know, so you decide to take adventure. You you heard these rumors and then they just start from there. But hex crawling through Hyperborea is really fun. And there's a I don't know if you know about this, but I'll send you a link. There's a reference. God, what's it called? It's like a, there's like a, somebody, a Ben, some Ben, I'm so bad with names. Ben something or other, put together a like a wandering monster chart, if you will, for Hyboria. But it's oh, like, right. um, but it's like this. You roll like three d six to see what might happen, and then depending on where you are and what terrain, it's not just monsters. It could be like a, a weird effects because it's in Hyboria. Of course, it could be all kinds of things. So like as they were traveling, I was using this. They ran into like. 100 ape men, uh, you know, cavalry that like tried to kidnap some of their NPC uh, uh, hirelings and stuff. It was really pretty wild. <laughs> you know, it's like that's the kind of stuff that I think really works well in Hyperborea, you know. So, yeah. But let's talk about the world. I think, uh, I, you know, I had some points that we were going to talk about. And I'm yeah. just, you know, just kind of riffing here with uh, Daniel um, in that uh, it looks like uh, the world is what we're going to talk about first. That's cool with you. So, what cool. about the yep. world, Daniel? Uh, what about the world makes it like, man, I want to dive into this. So one thing I think that is a really strong point, which I can maybe with some players, if they're used to other systems, might be a downside at first, is that I like that the world is very human-centric. Um, it's it's uh, There's different races of man, so you've got cultural differences, but um, but everybody's human, which I think actually works really well because then the world, when you do encounter something unusual it feels unusual because you're people, if that makes sense. Uh, so that was one of the first things that drew me in was that it is human-centric and it is, I mean, it's sword and sorcery, but it is a little bit high magic, I would say. Grittiness of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's, a, it's definitely a sword and sorcery world. And I, I do like the human-centricness. There are uh, a couple um, races of man that um, are a little different, Atlanteans and Hyperboreans. But for the most part, it's like uh, various cultures cultures from all over the world. And I, I don't know if I, I haven't looked, uh, dove in, and I haven't asked uh, Jeff Tulanian himself. Maybe if I see him at North Texas, I can ask him. But to me, it seems like right, there's different cultures, right? So there's like a, a Thracian culture, kind of Greek, uh, Ixian, which is kind of you know Near East, Black Sea, um, there's Hellenistic cultures, so that you know is reference to you know Greek uh, Greek slash Roman cultures, um, all sorts. And in the third edition, they've added uh, many more, right? So, um, so I, you know, Viking, for example, Scandinavian cultures. And it seems to me, I don't know if you've ever read um, Janissaries uh, by Jerry Cornell, but like uh, it's almost like what happens in that book. Just I'll spoil it for people: is aliens take people from different times in history and take them to this other planet uh, for their own reasons. But it, in a way, it, and that's almost kind of almost what happened is that in Hyperborea, all these cultures have been transported to this strange world, right? And the other weird thing about the world, and maybe you can comment on it since you guys, your characters have gone all over the place, is it's flat, right? So it's, it's a flat earth. Um, 
and the I guess the uh, is it the closer you get to the edge, the warmer it gets. Is that correct? Is that that's correct? Yeah. yeah so yeah. Cause, so, uh, sorry, because it's it's supposed to be like the right that the center where the mountain is, is supposed to be like the North Pole, right? It got ripped off the uh, the our Earth, if you will. So like you're, as you go out towards the edges, you're going south, which is really weird when you're trying to give directions when you're X-crawling. Because <laughs> yeah. people always think up on the map is north, but actually in is north. So that is a little bit tricky. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of maps. So that's definitely something that drew me to Hyperborea was like the world map. Uh, fantastic cartography. Um, to me, that, and they've always had really good uh, cartography and all their adventures, and as well as the and now in the new version, they're going to have a whole atlas uh, for the world that kind of breaks up the different sections, which I think is is cool. And, and it is it's it's different. It's it's unique. Uh, um, I, like uh, Daniel said, like it's like they pulled the top of Earth away and transported all these different cultures there. You could fall off the edge of the world. Um, the the north is all this, this huge mountain range. And uh, yeah, and I think as odd as the world is, it doesn't feel like I feel like in some when I look at some maps in some worlds, uh, it, like why this desert is in the middle of nowhere uh, makes no sense to me sometimes. Um, but I feel like uh, they did a great job of making everything things make sense, right? There's no to me. Um, in, it in does, the yeah. The, the geography yeah, makes sense actually... as, as bizarre as it is, right? Yeah, and, like, if you look at, like, the mountain ranges, like, they have, like, you know, hills lead up to them. I mean, they definitely thought about making the map feel real, as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm no master uh, map maker, but it looks, it does look and feel real. And, and you can, like I said, you can fall off the, the, the earth, which is really cool. I also love, and I try to bring up a lot, the fact that, the you know, it's got that big bloated sun and two moons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, currently, we started uh, in year seven, which is the summer where basically there's uh, almost no darkness. And now we're in year one, and there's almost no light. So like there's this whole weird, there's like this 13-year cycle. I guess, I mean, I know you know that, but maybe people are listening. So yeah. each, each you know, year, as we would call it, like 360 days or however long they are, is a, a part of a season. And there's 13 of those make up a Hyporian year, which is 13 years. So you've got this like weird cycle. So they've actually only been adventuring for like half a Hyperborean year, but it's been... You know, like Earth years or whatever it's been, I guess. They're on one. That's, let me do some math. That's seven, I think. <laughs> so they've been traveling for seven years. And now they have to deal with the fact that it's like negative 40 degrees when they're crossing the plains. And they're like big mammoth skins and, you know, all this other stuff going on. Whereas when they started, they were like in loincloths in the desert, like, you know, having heat stroke if they were out too long because there was no respite from the from the sun. Well, not heat stroke because it doesn't get that hot there, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think that's really cool. That I'm glad that you you kind of dived into the the weird. Well, I guess there's, we're going to say weird a lot in this uh, podcast, I'm sure. But the <laughs> the 13 year cycle, um, and I mean, I haven't run a campaign long enough to try to to get into that. But I, it's definitely something I, I want to do is to really show that the the bizarre um, you know cycle, you know, celestial heavens thing that and it really influences like what ha- i think i think it even can it probably could even influence like what kind of encounters you might have because there's some creatures that might only come out uh during the colds the cold times and others that you know are, are you know are they are they're driven underground when there's too much sun you know type of thing so i think you can really use the environment in the world the climate in the world to to really a fantastic effect so uh and i think that was yeah. it's, it's intentional clearly right so yeah, th- this is the first campaign I've ever run. I mean, I've run long campaigns before uh, with other, in other systems, uh, 5e being the one I've probably run the longest. Um, and I never really, you know, it was always just kind of spring or fall. You know, it's like you don't worry about the weather too much unless it becomes a point of the story. But in this game, I really feel like it is part of it. And I, I try to use it. I actually, I'm, this is, I really keep a tight calendar. I, I watch the, the, the seasons. And sometimes I have to make decisions. I'll be like, well, you know, if you go now, it's going to be negative 40 degrees you could wait six months or whatever, but that might be a problem. So they have to make choices and they're running a shipping company. So that matters because ice and stuff. So yeah, it really, the the weather and the, especially the darkness and the light, I think are, are a huge part of the game. And one thing that I think is interesting about it is that if you're running modules like I am, and I didn't realize this when I first started doing it, the modules change, right? Because if you have a module where somebody's going into the mountains and it's the summer, 
that might be very doable. But if it's the mountains and it's the winter, that's going to be incredibly treacherous because of the temperature changes and the darkness and all that. So yeah, yeah it matters. Definitely a consideration, and I, I like how they've yeah. they put that in there. Obviously, it's your always your campaign, and these things are optional. But but I think it makes the world very living and robust uh, when you do that. Consistent, I think, is a is a cool yeah. is a word to use too. It's very consistent. I mean, we there's we have a myriad of different campaign worlds to play in, and uh, your your mileage may vary at the different ones that you look at. But uh, some are not very consistent, and it kind of breaks for me at least a uh, verisimilitude. Um, so, I, did have you traveled to any of the little pocket places in Hyperborea? So, for example, they have like Joe Salvatore's product. I mentioned Joe Salvatore, Raven God Games, um, and Moo, like Fane of the Serpent Goddess. Have you, you haven't looked at that? Are you traveled to there? Because they have po that's the other cool thing about the world is hold on, like hold on, that was the Lemurian one, or is it another one? Is it, is it, is it Lemuria? Well, that's a, you're talking about officially published stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was the same job with Salvatore. Yeah, we, we were in that one. That was awesome. <laughs> and actually, yeah, when so you go there, when you go there, it's super warm. So right. It's, it's right at the edge of the world, and it was like 100 degrees, and they were just they were dying. I mean, it was terrible for them. So it's like you can't wear metal armor, you know, yeah. without having a heat stroke. And you're like, you do, oh, that's a really good module, actually. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was, I didn't realize it was the same guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that so, was one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, it's great. So, um. Yeah, so that's kind of, and that's kind of what Kevin did. He kind of had like a little pocket place, uh, mm -hmm. like like I said, called Tule, um, and he put it like we had, we were on a ship. Um, oh, just FYI, just as an aside, if you ever play a game with Kevin Madison, never get on a boat. Every time I've played, it always there's some catastrophe. <laughs> but that's how we got to Tule, which was hella cool. We you know we shipwrecked and all that, and I had to survive in in this new world. But you could do that in Hyperborea because it has yeah. this, this kind of. Uh, uh, I guess a uh, flexibility. I could think is a is yeah. Cool. I think you could even put. Yeah. I think there's been talk on the on the on the Discord on the Hyperborean Discord too of putting um, uh, the Jack Hayes product Caverns of Thracia somewhere in Hyperborea because oh. it could totally could totally work either as a pocket place or there's plenty of random islands out in the huge ocean too, right? So so it's definitely flexible if you don't want to go through the modules. That's what I would say as a oh 100 positive a positive right. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it lends itself to that. So if you normally, like in any other system, like when I ran 5th edition, when I run original Dungeons and Dragons, when I run AD&D, when I run all those things, I usually just say, oh, it's the World of Greyhawk, and I just kind of say that, but I don't use anything from the World of Greyhawk that's actually part of that. I just call it that uh -huh. because that's what I remembered when I was a kid, and I make up everything. In this one, I actually use the world because it's there's enough detail there to get you going, but then you can fill it in. It doesn't feel forced. Every one of these places, like if you read Lemuria... Uh, in the actual book, the second edition book, it's only like, I don't know, 10 paragraphs. So you, if you didn't use the module, you could create your own world or your own idea around it. But then if you use the module, you get extra stuff. So, right. yeah. And dinosaurs. Spoiler. Um, I think a, a ninjas too, right? Ninjas, ninjas riding dinosaurs? Hmm. Yeah, anyway. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. All right, so, so let's talk about now, I, I mean... I think that's great about the world, right? It's a, it's a, it's flexible, it's consistent. Uh, you can do your own thing, and they have a whole host of modules that I think, much like um, maybe this is the last point on the world, is much like I think the the older games like AD and D, Greyhawks, and specifically, right? They didn't have like a big. They created the modules, and then these kind of created the lore of the world like the lore was evolving based on the adventures which i think is kind of a a, a cool um homage to the way that old school design the philosophy of old school design is you didn't have this giant world book necessarily these these adventures kind of gave you the feel for the world uh, would you agree or disagree or how in your experience i mean how has that happened or has that happened yeah, 100%. And what's interesting about it is that people go back to it, right? So, like, you've got, again, like, we started in Zimbala, um, which is a, a, also a great module. And uh, that module, um, if, again, if you read it in the book, it says, like, two paragraphs about Zimbala. Oh, it's this thing and this is the... And, but then once you play in it, you've got this added stuff that you want to... And then from right. that, what I did was I looked around, because, of course, they did other things, because they were exploring... And there was other things in the book that they only had a paragraph or two about, but there was no module. So then I had to add my own stuff to it. 
So, you know, now I have my own lore. So if they do make a module about some of these places, I might not use it because I've already got yeah. my own or I'll just take little things about it. And I think that's, I think it's great because it allows people, not that any game doesn't allow you to do that, but it, it it's designed to be built upon as opposed to being a fully fleshed out uh, yes. area, I think is the best way that I would right. say it. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's uh, like I always felt, uh, it's not crowded, right? So I always felt yeah, like some of these, um, some of these already pre, uh, pre-existing worlds are crowded, right? Like yeah. you, you throw a stone and you hit a high level NPC, you know, type of thing. I guess that's another right. thing is that, right. is that it's the player, it's the world is designed to be player focused. You don't have a lot mm -hmm. of stats on high level NPCs that are, you know, throwing, chucking fireballs and, you know, stopping time everywhere. It's very much uh, the player's world. I agree with that 100%. And in all the modules, and I've run all of them, even the higher level ones, most of the people you encounter are like, zero level or first level people because that's the way the world is supposed to be you're if you're a high level adventurer you're pretty unique i mean there's definitely monsters that are really uh, hard to, to kill but right. you know most of the npcs are not that like you very rarely run into a, a really high level npc so that's that and none of them are like controlling areas like you go into a, a chromarium and it's not like well these npcs run the whole place and you just have to bow down to them it doesn't really have that you, you kind of create your own vibe the way you want to do it right. which i like a lot yeah yeah, so um, so I think uh, the world's great, and I guess we we both agree with that. So, um, the so world. Well, I, I mean, I it makes sense. Sorry, I'm yeah, yeah. it kind of makes sense, right? Because whenever you hear Jeffrey talk about it, he de he developed the world first, right? It was yeah. he was developing a wow. setting, and then he realized that in order to make the setting really, and this is I'm now loosely interpreting based on things he said. It seems like he built a game around it to make sure, not make sure, but to to assist in that world. Like he was like. I'm building this setting. And then he was like, you know what, though? This setting would have these things. And as he did it, he basically built a game because he realized it would have these kind of player characters and this and that. So and that's really why. I mean, in my understanding of how he kind of created the whole thing was he started off with the setting first, not the game, if that makes sense. Right. So like for my Shadows of uh, shadows out of Vinland, I'm putting them in a, a place called Port Zangarius, which um, the I, I think is going to be my, my segue. Yeah, it has the cool masks. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, this is my cool segue onto the fiction. So Port Zangarius, to me, even the word Zangarius, it's kind of an amalgamation of, of uh, Cordova in Zingara and Mesantia in Argos in uh, Robert Howard's uh, Conan world. So uh, it definitely has that vibe, pirates and, and scum and villainy, uh, but with this trapping of, of society uh, there uh, that exists as well. And uh, I, I thought it was a great place to put it. And the good thing, as Daniel has said, there's like only a few paragraphs on it, so you can do whatever the hell you want, giving, giving you a lot of flexibility. So I've kind of, you know, uh, kind of done done some of that in, in at least in my mind i don't want to spoil too much for players who might listen but but you know you could it's neat and and i think the cool thing is that the inspiration is from you know uh howard so uh right. so it's a sword and sorcery world and uh let's talk about the fiction i think uh to me um the main influences are robert howard from conan hp lovecraft because you have a lot of otherworldly unnatural mythos illusions even some of the gods uh, that they have in the world are, are mythos, uh, known mythos deities, Cthulhu, uh, Sagothwa, uh, Sagotha, how do you pronounce that? The frog, the frog. Um, and then um, Clark Ashton Smith, right? So the, the space-time, the, probably the weird cosmology of the world is, comes from Smith uh, with all of his very poetic uh, descriptions of traveling through space-time. Uh, and I think that's what sets the tone Really? Yeah, one hundred percent. And if you read, so most of Clark Aston Smith's stuff is actually available for free because uh, it's in public domain. Uh, there's actually a website. It's called like the Dark Something or other. But if you just Google, you'll find it. Um, Put it that has link all in the show notes. Yeah, I'll find it. And I'll send you. So if you don't know it already, it's called something like Dark Cabinet or something. But it's got a lot of his stuff. And I actually took all those uh, down, all the ones that were in the Hyperborea cycle, um, and I printed them all and read them as I was running them the the adventures. And and to get myself the right feel, and it's funny how many things are in Hyperborea, like very much the fall of Hyperborea. If you read the background with the whole uh, moving away from the the god the gods like Apollo, and then uh, starting to worship the frog god and using the drugs and falling into decadence, like that's all in Clark Ashton Smith's writings. It's really interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's clear there's a really good influence and, and, um, and, and I guess it's all, it's pretty much sword and sorcery though. Right. It's not, mm -hmm. um, I mean, and maybe any, any sort of, um, pastiche that's been done based on the works of those authors. I, I would say that there's probably like, you know, some influence also by, by from Fritz Lieber, the very much the, the, oh, but yeah. so like, like, I mean, you could totally do like a, a buddy, a buddy game. Right. So, and that's kind of what yeah. I'm running in, in, in the shadows game that I'm, you know, you have like two, two, two heroes that it can, um, are the main stars of the, of the tale. Right. So, so Fritz Lieber is definitely a strong influence too, I would say. Um, no, 100%. And I, and I actually think as much as I love Dungeon Crawl Classics, which I know is also influenced by those things, I think Dungeon Crawl Classics goes further in the gonzo, uh, just by the nature of the game. This one stays a little bit more level. So I think that if you want to really run like a, a, a Fritz Lieber type game, I think I would probably use this this system or this world anyways. Although yeah. I I say that and I have the <laughs> the uh, the Fritz Lieber box set for the Dungeon Crawl Classics in the back, unopened. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. Well, well, because some of those things like patrons and stuff, uh, you know, for, for the characters aren't really in Sergeant uh, Swordsman, but you mm -hmm. can make that up, you know, and you can use right. that. I just think that the variety of the the human centricness of it, the uh, the kind of weird science stuff that happens, like there's flamethrowers from the Atlanteans and airships mm -hmm. and stuff like that that you can find all like lost technology. Uh, this idea that like the Earth is like older it is really cool. It comes from a lot of like say this weird fiction uh, authors. Yeah. Right, like Lynn Carter and Elsbrog de Camp, yeah. and you know, that type of Atlantean, sure. Atlantean cycle, as well as Howard's, you know, Cole. Uh, uh, yeah, and very specifically, because I was talking about this book from A. Barrett, this this book here, Dwells in the Mirage, is all about the god Kraken, which is a, a Kakaru, which is actually in Hyperborea. And it's very, if you read this book and you read what they talk about in Hyperborea with, with that god and everything, it's from this book. I mean, oh. it is exactly this. And when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, ha, ha. and there's even a valley that's in on the map that to me seems like it's the same place it should be. So that's where I'm setting the adventure. So, because uh, my players already know that because they're they've got information. So I'm not giving away too much. But um, yeah, it's like a lost valley and and and, and uh, Kraken or Kakaru, the dweller. And it's really interesting. And uh, it, it's clear that he didn't just take like, like read books and then come up with a lot of stuff offhand. He really does a lot of throwbacks, uh, Jeffrey, that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, which is very cool because you, you, when you're reading the fiction, you're like, oh, oh, I know what that is, you know, and it's really a fun, uh, uh, fun if you're a reader and you're into that kind of stuff. But anyways, yeah. yeah. So, I think you could, um, you could take one of these books, like you've mentioned, the the uh, Clark Ashton Smith cycle, the Hyperborea Tales, and and uh, A Merritt's book here, and you could read them and then run them, and they would not be out of place in in a Hyperborea game. And, and a lot of times we try to to fit some of the fiction that we really like into our our setting of choice. And if you really like sword and sorcery, and you find a you know a, there's a cool you know, story from either short stories from Howard or 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 novels from other other people, then you could just you could run that. You know, you could totally. Yeah, I think actually one of the players said uh, in one scene in the in one of the modules that we we've, we've run, he's like, oh, that scene, that's from. Clark Ashton Smith's book. <laughs> yeah. I remember that scene in the Clark Ashton uh -huh. Smith tale. So yeah, so that's crazy. Totally yeah. Fits, in, fits in, which I think is really cool. Well, so we've been talking about like a lot of the fluff. But let's maybe switch gears here, Daniel, and get into like some of the meat of the game. Because, you know, you'd have a great fluff and wonderful settings, but then the GM has to do a lot of prep work and legwork and, um, you know, so... What makes us attractive to the, I guess, the players, let's say. Ah. So, good. Yes. Yeah. So, and I think what makes it attractive to the players, because players, you know, DMs love fluff. I know I'm being general. I'm being, a, it's a generalization. GMs love fluff because we know all the backstory. We want to know why the hell this happens, why it happens. The players want mechanics. I want to build my, you know, badass, you know, loincloth barbarian, right? So, um, but can we do that in uh, Hyperborea? Talk about the character classes. Yeah, I, I, I'd say yeah. I, so what they do here uh, again? I'm assuming that not everybody has played this. They don't have multi-classing. Right? We talked a little about that. There's just a ton of classes. So you've got your four core classes: your your fighter, magic user, or yeah, no, magician. They call it fighter, magician, cleric, and uh, thief. 
and then you've got what what twenty two subclasses or something like that. Yeah, was and they're effectively <laughs> yeah they're effectively well formed subclasses. So you were talking about your warlock earlier. That's like a fighter magic user heavy in the fighter, right? So like mm-hmm. you're you're as tough as the fighters for the most part, but you've got some magic, and then you've got other classes that are tougher. Let's say magic with a little bit of fighter. And then you've got like mixed classes that have like a little bit of thief and magic user or cleric. And there's also some classes that are kind of unique, like the like the shaman is pretty cool. I find that to be different than uh, a lot of things. And uh, the the rune graver, I would say, is another pretty yeah. specific. Uh, um, they've got the huntsman, which is kind of like a beast master. We can have uh, you know your animal companions, but it's not like a ridiculous magical thing. Oh, I should say ridiculous. I don't want to make judgments, but it's not a magical thing. It's like somebody who's just trained to deal with animals. So. Um, you know, they can tame animals and stuff, which allows them to then have, like in, in this book that I'll refer to again, because I've been sitting here, one of the characters controls a bunch of wolves, and it's clear that she just has a real of, of affinity towards animals. Mm-hmm. It's not really like a magic spell. She's just, a, you know, like a, she's basically a huntsman. So I think that kind of stuff is really interesting for the from the player's point of view. It gives them a lot of options. Right. So So just to give numbers here, so there are seven fighter subclasses, five magician subclasses cleric there's five and for thief there are also five so uh what is that 22 22 subclasses and the the base four that gives you you know that many options for to find uh the character class and and uh, what do they do i think what since it's a human-centric world and i think what he wanted to, i don't know i've never interviewed him but i'm speculating that uh you know in, in a in uh, in other in, in an AD and D game, you have multiple uh, species, uh, so elves, etc., and you multiclass them to get you know like the fighter thief, the, you know the uh, fighter magic user. But in here, since you have the human centric, and we're not multiclassing, we want to stay consistent with the backbone of the the AD and D rules. Then you know we have these different subclasses that take on um, characteristics of so like for example, warlock fighter magic user. Um, there's also like a magic user thief, I think the Purloiner or Leisure Domain or whatever, or, um, and there's like a cleric thief. There's all sorts of combinations that, you know, a player who wants to diversify away from the, the base four classes can then find their little knit, their niche, you know, to, uh, uh, to get into, I, I think. And I mean, I, yeah, and it's subtle. I think that's really the key is it works for the world, if that makes sense. Like, right. like your warlock, I'd have to look it up. I have the PDF here. Uh, like, I think the Warlock is a fighter magic user, but I don't think, right. like, I think they, they fight as tough as a fighter, but yes. they can't, um, I think they can't wear all the armor, right? There's, like, a little bit of a difference, like, they're only up to, like, medium armor or something. So they're right. not all, they're not exactly a fighter magic user. And I think mm-hmm. it actually works better, at least in my opinion, than multiclassing. I'm not a big multiclasser, so I'll put that on the table up front. <laughs> Right, because then I think in multi-classing, right, you have to split your your XP, and and this That's way true. you feel like you progress uh, up upwards, you know, in one particular class, and you can become pretty powerful and and specialized. And I think uh, I think they've done a he he, he did a great job, uh, Jeff did in designing these different classes to to kind of fit all those uh, you know class classic let's say ad and d first edition combos that you might see but now in a human-centric world and now you just have one class that you can focus on and that gets the benefits of those combos from from you know years before but now you know you don't have to split your focus of your time i i think as a player it it really helps i mean i played a a warlock um i I think rune graver is a really fun class to play as well I would say I think because I played a warlock the longest, it's probably my favorite. Do you have a favorite class? Yeah, warlock is definitely one of the best classes. I would say, like, I mean, as far as like versatility is, you know, having run, I think we've played almost every class in the campaign. Um, and I will say too that this this game is not balanced really. Like, there are some classes that are definitely mechanically better than others, and I don't have a problem with that. I know some people don't really like that. Like, barbarian is much better than many other classes. Like, as far as the scope of what you get with it. It, but it's also hard to qualify for. Um, but I would say and there's that an XP penalty. There's an XP penalty too, really. That's right. Yeah, of course you're paying. Yeah, yeah, you're paying more in XP. Uh, I mean, but but even the straight up fighter. That being said, the straight up fighter is pretty pretty darn good because they get mm-hmm. uh, two weapon masteries right up front, which is huge. Um, so yeah, if you take a like if you take a fighter like a first level fighter, they get three attacks around with their specialized weapon right off the bat against first level and below enemies, which. 
again, as we talked about before in the world, most people aren't high level. So you are going to, you know, I know that's true in AD&D where you get that bonus against like low level characters, but in AD&D, most of the time, by the time you're fifth, sixth, seventh level, you're not fighting first level people. If you look at those modules, like the bartender's a seventh level ranger for some reason, all these AD&D modules. So I actually think that he does that better here. It's like, why is that ranger there? It's like, how did he get a million experience points and like uh, all that gold? And he's now he's working as a barkeep. But anyways. Yeah, Bad because I think the, the characters are are the stars of the show, and they have all these class yeah. combinations. You really, oh, yeah. uh, it really makes like the use of henchmen and hirelings kind of a a, a cool addition, and it it it, yeah. it helps. I mean, it, I think it helps promote promote that. I, I mean, I at least in gameplay, I can't okay. can't put my finger on why. Maybe you have some insight on that, but it just I just feel like you know because they don't have to like uh, like again because they're the star. They feel like players. I think feel like. This is, you know, I'm, you know, this is my show. If we were to have a like a, a series, like a Marvel Universe series, this would be my show. And I have all these companions or or friends that a- aid me. But you know, it's my, you know, it's the star. I'm the star of the show, right? It's like, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I think one thing they do, which is very interesting, is it's different. I think than a lot of things is they do put a big focus on what we'll call hirelings and mercenaries more so than henchmen, right? So, like, you get, like, my character, my group has hired tons. I mean, probably the course of the campaign, probably 20 to 50, you know, not all at once. Uh, like, zero level and first level spearmen and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but people for the boats. And that's mostly what you're hiring. When you get a higher level, you can have what's called a henchman, which mm-hmm. is a classed character that can gain experience points. But that's, like, totally a different thing. And it's almost like an apprentice. So yeah. most of the people you're bringing into the, into the fold aren't... Uh, high-level characters, like you say, so you really do get to be the star for the most part. The The high-level NPCs are pretty rare. Uh, I mean, my characters happen to have one traveling with them right now because they picked them up in, her up in a, like two modules ago and they've just been yeah. treating her well, so giving her magic items and stuff, so she's hanging out. But uh, for the most part, uh, you're right. Like it, This does seem to have a very strong uh, uh, draw, or whatever, the, to let people do that, or have people do that, versus what, say, where you're picking up henchmen, where they're taking up half your experience points and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, in some games. So I think that's actually a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of, it's cool that it works, um, you know, in this game. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about character classes. I mean, I think that's a, it's a, yeah. I, I think so, that one of the, one it thing is an I'll attractive is, part of it. it's an attractive part of the game to me. Right. I think so. I think a lot of people like the variety and I know I have a, uh, players like when i'm a player crystal she's always uh like she's played the most characters partially because of character death and partially because she just switches sometimes um but uh you know yeah because she's always wanting to try these different ones she's like oh this is a cool class and she'll try it out because there's just so much variety and and i think that there is a lot of options i'm a simple person myself like i would probably just play the four four classes if i had my choice but yeah i think that that. players do like it you can yeah yeah yeah, it yeah, even so, recommends actually to do that in the in the book. It says if you're if new players or if you're a new DM, to just have the four core classes while you're learning the system, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's get into the system. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, nominally, it uses like a the AD and D kind of backbone, but it, it definitely I feel in gameplay, um, and we can probably discuss specifics, but it it makes things a little easier. Than you know, yeah. AD and D, I, I think. Um. Mm-hmm. 100%. I think it's mostly because of the organization of it. Uh, I think it's really put together well. Um, the classes are given a little bit more depth, I think, than AD and D classes right off the bat, which I think helps people play different classes. Like magicians can have familiars, they can write scrolls, so they give them a little bit yeah. more something to do. You know, the fighters have the weapon mastery, but it's not deeply into like the second edition, you know. Uh, Tons of skills and proficiency stuff. It's it's pretty simple, so it's fast to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's no, there aren't any skills. That's right. right. You have like no a skills. maybe a background, a background career type of thing, um, but yep. there are no skills. And I think that they go around. I mean, I think a mechanic that they use to me that works really well. So like, if you need a character to, you know, if you just don't let them know what they know, but you feel like you need a role, you can do these tests of, right? For yep. the, you can just, they have these tests of strength, uh, dex, and con um, that you can use to say, well, then uh, it's just that you're crossing this, 
this you know this river that's going very fast and i just need to see you can take it and you just make them have them roll you know not their swimming skill but a test of strength or whatever you know to and it's it's a simple d6 which i think is is really neat and they also do that in a way they um there's no subsystems i think that's what maybe makes it yeah that's a good point no there's no subsystems for example you don't have to break out your percentile dice and look on another table uh, for your thieves thieves abilities right thieves or monks abilities right so it's a it's, they use a d12 system and this is the same mechanic that barbarians use for their their special abilities um and it's a d12 and you roll it's a roll under on the d12 so it gives you a good range um and it improves it does improve with level but you know it's not yeah it it, it doesn't seem to me it's a disconnect like that some people have talked about or about why you have why do you have a different way to do x and you can just you know like what three five did eventually is everything on a d20 right so I think right. Jeff Delanian has tried to to streamline. I could think is probably the best term. Streamline some of these mechanics so they're they feel consistent and they're not like too different than the normal way you do things. Yeah, I agree. I like the D twelve system. I think it's good. Like you say, most things. Like if a barbarian has a climb thing, it'll be like like a thief of the same level for the most part. Yeah. And what I like about that personally as a player is I like that it relies on the player character more than the thing you're trying to achieve. And I know some people don't like this. In other words, like if you're playing 5th edition, you set a DC based on the lock. Here, it's you pick the lock based on your skill. And I actually think that's a it's, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's a big difference. The hero is... it's it, they're, they're as heroic as they are, not as heroic as the task, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, the other thing yeah, I want I to say, I'd... too, is I, I, use that, I use that test thing on all the ability scores. I actually yeah. I keep meaning to, yeah, because it's not listed there, but it's consistent. So, like, if somebody wants to know something or they want to read a writing they can't read, but they have a similar language, I might say, well, make a test of intelligence, you know? Yeah, so, I, I, it's, it's a really scale, easy like, system. Right. Yeah. 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 I think actually in the third edition, he has like a something that it's not, a, that's not like the in the main rules, but like there's a, there's a little paragraph in the third edition where, you know, if you wanted to do what you just described, this is how you would do it, which is exactly how you described. So it's logical, right? It seems like yeah, the yeah, rules yeah. are logical. Uh, and, and yeah, I, it I makes would, sense, yeah. And I would say that, uh, uh, like, you know, we always get these, like, GM screens for every single game we have. But I would say that that uh, as far as stuff on the screen, the Hyperborea screen, you know, everything can fit on there. And you really... I know the book is big and could be intimidating, but you really can just use a screen. And I think that's you know, great, a great um, kudos to design. And because the game is, is streamlined enough, you could do that, right? You have, you know, your reaction role, your morale, your, you know, your, you know, your um, turn undead and all this is on the same, same thing. Um, organized very well and maybe that's what you said is like the it's well organized it's a well organized game <laughs> i guess it is i actually told him when i saw him at shirecon i was like uh i think that's the first time i saw him after i got the screen i said uh, i think your your gm screen is one of the best ones i've ever used it's it's really well organized and what i actually did was i took it and uh, the pdf of it and i cut it up and i made it the same dimensions as my screen like mm -hmm. my my monitor so when i'm running the game i just have it behind my window and then I just drop all my windows down, and I'm able to run the game with um, almost never looking at the book, unless it's a spell yeah. or a monster or right, something right. like that. But that's different. Yeah, some for spot rulings, you have to, you always have to do that. Yeah. We can't remember. We can't remember anything, you know, age and memory and all that. Yeah, <laughs> well, because the the screen has all the weapons. It's got yeah. you know travel. It's really a well done screen, and and yeah, I recommend it a lot. Actually, if you're going to get the game, I recommend getting the screen because it's, it's very useful. Yeah, but that's you know, it's it also harkens back to like how well organized and well designed this is that you can actually yeah. fit all that on a you know three panel screen right you could fit what you need to run the game on a three panel screen i think that's that's a plus for the way yeah. for the, the, the robustness of the rules um and how smooth uh, the gameplay uh goes yeah when i ran it at gary con i just took the screen with me i mean i have the the pdf on my phone if i really needed it but the yeah. screen is the only thing i took as the dm in my adventure you know, yeah. which had the monsters in it, so I didn't. Have yeah, that's. I don't. I don't. How many games can you say you can do that with? I, hard, you'd be hard pressed. 
Yeah. So, um, all right. So, so if I were to play devil's advocate, Daniel, there is one thing that people always kind of, uh, when they see it, they're like, ah, oh, and they might they might get a bit agitated about it, and and that's the in the the combat system. And I know right. they have a, a third edition. But let's talk about the second edition combat system. I mean, um, it does right. use Thaco. Some some people mm -hmm. that Thaco is a deal breaker right, yeah. for some people. I can't help that. It's true, yeah. But you know, but um, but then it um, there's this it two phase system. Mm -hmm. So I, I I like procedural. I, I like yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it speeds. I personally think it speeds up gameplay. Uh, you know, declaration of actions helps the player already know what they're going to do. Um, many times, I think in in games for me for three point five on up. Uh, the delay and, and the, the slowness of combat is all the options that the player has because they haven't thought about it ahead of time. So if you kind of get an idea uh, of what you want to do, then you're kind of ready to go when it happens. So the procedural is um, in, in Hyperborea is melee, missile, magic, move. And you want to talk about the two-phase system and how that is implemented? And then I'll, we can go yeah, ahead and... and yeah, exactly. I'll talk about that because I'm running second edition right now because yeah. I didn't want to switch in the middle of the campaign. Um, so, right, you declare actions, which I agree. I think it helps a lot. And I'll, I'll kind of, um, I'll try to handle the, the problems that people say there are with that as I go. So you go around the table and you're just like, what do you want to do? Spell, missile, movement, or, on, you know, or they say some other action. And then what people often think is, well, if I said Malay and then... Uh, the person next to me kills that enemy with their with their bow. Well, actually, Millie goes first. I said missile, and then the person ahead of me kills that enemy with their sword. You know, they charge up and kill him. Now I can't do anything. Well, first of all, I don't have a problem with that, but let's assume that you do have a problem with that. This is where I think the second phase comes in really nicely because it's easy enough to say to somebody when they want to change their action, okay, you'll just go second phase. Just say what you want to do. And it, it kind of... And again, I hate to use the word realistic, but it gives you that thing where it's like, because when you're playing a game that's like these 10 second rounds and everybody's like going in order based on rolling a d20. And to me, it like often doesn't make sense. It's like, okay, so you wouldn't be aware of everything going on around you so you can observe the whole table. And again, I know, I know it's not uh, realistic as a silly word to use, but I think it makes more sense for you to make your judgment of what you think you want to do. And then if you want to change your mind, you take what would effectively be a little bit of a penalty, which is going to go a little bit later. And honestly, if you lose initiative, it doesn't matter anyways, right? So it only is... That's group uh, initiative. It matters. Yeah, it's group initiative, right? D6. So you got the two phases. So and what you can do with it, too, is you could say something like, uh, okay, well, I want to uh, charge forward and attack this guy. Or you might say, well, you might have a bow, and you might be like, all right, I'm going to move back, and then I'm going to shoot with my bow because they're getting too close. Or if you're going to cast a spell, you can't move at all, right? So um, you might uh, say, I'm going to cast a spell. You could do all all sorts of things. And I think that, like most things, when you're first learning it, it seems a little clunky. But once you have it down, I actually find it to be much faster than the everybody rolls their own initiative and goes in order. I, I find it to be really efficient and never, or I can't think of a time that somebody ever was like, oh, I felt like I didn't get to do what I wanted to do because this system, which is, I think, the complaint that most people make. Like they are afraid they're going to lose their turn or something, but I, I've never seen that happen. So, right, yeah. I got, I haven't seen that happen either. And I know when I played with Kevin Madison, we did the two two phase system, and yeah. you know, at first you're like, oh, how does this really work? But then you know, when you you say, oh, I would like to, uh, Kevin, I want to do this, and then you're like, okay, well then this is what happens in the first phase, and then the resolution is in the second phase, and it, it kind of breaks things up very uh, nicely and in an organized manner and, and combat is, is pretty, uh, pretty thrilling and dynamic, I would say, uh, because of that. Now in the, in the, they got rid of the, the two phase system in the third edition, but really I will, I would contend it's, it's a hybrid because you do all the melee magic and missile and then move and anything else. So if you incorporate a move, in any of your actions, then you're going to go more or less in the second phase. So even right. though it's just one phase, but you know, so you can, yeah. you so, go right, so if, you, if you're already fighting in melee, that will be resolved first. But if you then, you know, need to move up to somebody to attack and we resolve the fights that are happening. And then in the next phase, you can move up and just like in the second edition, move up to half your move and attack. 
So right, still- I guess the difference. I think they allow you to spell cast and move in in the new edition, which does change a bit. Uh, but here's the thing. This is why I think this is not exact. I know it's kind of a hybrid, but the reason why I like the two phase system better is because it's a, it's a player choice. Because two phases, I guess I should make it clear because maybe it's not clear. People are listening. Phase one happens for both sides before phase two happens. So mm-hmm. if you say something like, "I want," let's say you're, you're you're using a bow, and you're like, "I want to charge forward and attack that guy with my battle axe." Now I might say. That's fine, but you're gonna have to go second phase because you got to put the, if you want to put the bow away, right? If you want to just drop it, whatever. But if you want to actually stow your bow because you're you know standing on this cliff near a lava, you don't want to drop your bow in there because that's exactly what's gonna happen. Uh, you know, it, you're gonna go second phase. Now they have to make a decision: Do I want to drop my bow and risk it so I can attack this person the first round to save the magician who's getting uh, hit? Do I want to instead shoot an arrow because that's gonna happen, or do I do exactly that? I'm risking going after the enemy by doing the slower movement that I want to do. And I think you lose that in this system because unless you're doing melee, melee, missile, missile, you're not doing that, right? It's one whole side in third edition. Oh, no, I, I, I feel like, uh, it's, it's a, you go and then they, and then the side goes in each of the phases. That's kind of the way I've always. Oh, really? Oh, okay. All right. Then that does still keep that then. Oh, that's actually very interesting. Boom. Yep. I don't know. I'll have to, if that's the case, that, that, then what I'm saying doesn't isn't the same thing, but then it does it does remove charges, which we were talking about earlier before we started yeah, recording. Yeah, yeah, which I actually really like charges, but <laughs> yeah, charges are are pretty yeah pretty good in this game because you, you yeah. right, it was a, it was it was a melee action, and now it's like a move right. plus melee action, you know, technically. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're not going to get shot with a bow, basically. Uh, you know, well, I guess you could theoretically, but like if you charge up on somebody, you're probably going to be too close for them to shoot you with their bow, right? I don't know if that's technically in the rules, but like I think most people would rate it that way. If you have an archer there and you charge up with your uh, battle axe, or at the very least, you can cut him down before he shoots you with an arrow. I guess putting movement at the end means you wouldn't be able to do that. Right. Yeah, I think there's some subtleties and some things to work out yeah. necessarily in in the game. But uh, I, I think that I think combat works, and and whether it's two phase or yeah. this sort of hybrid, uh, not move and move, then I, I think it still it still works pretty well. Um, yeah. No, my understanding from an interview that, he, that Jeffrey did before they actually came out the third edition when he was just talking about it was that uh, the reason why he changed it was because that's what everybody was doing anyways. Like most people, well, that he, that, well, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people were not using the two-phase system anyways. They were just doing one phase. So right. he just said, well, I'm just going to change it. <laughs> so there you go. Make it consistent you know? so people don't feel like yeah. I know the, the Hyperborea police are going to come get me because I'm not doing it right. <laughs> right. Well, I feel like that's funny because I think that's why a lot of rule changes happen in games as much as like you know, people like me that like the old rule are going to rage against it. Like, no, it's like they don't just change stuff arbitrarily. They're changing it because people are doing it that way. Usually that's right. usually the case. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, uh, I, I will, I will say this though, with um, whether it's a two phase system or the, the hybrid system, um, the move, I'll call it the not move, move system. I mean, the combat mm-hmm. goes really fast. I mean, when I've compared, <laughs> you know, um, games up, when I've compared games to the more modern games where you, everyone rolls their individual initiative and then goes to uh, at least Hyperborea, then, you know, we I've been able to do several combats in a session as opposed to just one or two. Right? In, a, in, oh, the, yeah. in, our, in our three, like, because of, you know, all, how busy everyone is, you know, our three to four hour, four hours tops, usually it's like three hours sessions, you know. I would say even two to three hour sessions that some of us get to play, you know, the ability in three hours to do like five combats is is fantastic. Yeah, and I you think don't... you could do that. It, it's a, it's a easy. It's a, it's a very smooth system. I think that's you know, smooth. Yeah. And ro- as well as being robust because you don't just have like run up and attack. There's like a whole host of of other combat options that you do have. You know, some that's of them right. Are class yeah, the advanced combat. But some of them anyone can do right. So. Um, I think that's and some are very cool, like setting arrows and stuff that I don't, yeah. I haven't seen in other systems. I mean, maybe they are right. there, but right. Or there's like the for the fighter that can can shoot and move, or move and shoot uh, type. Right, of or throw the axe and then, then yeah. charge you. So if you hold like a hand axe, yeah, yep. <laughs> that's so yeah. cool. Some, yeah, a lot of flavor, you know. That, you know a lot yeah. Of, yeah, so that and that totally fits in with the fiction. You know, going back to everything yep. and consistency being like a buzzword that we've been using is you know the world works with the fiction, the rules work with the the fiction and the world, right? Um, so it gives yeah. you this. And what I 
what I do with the advanced combat is um, just in case somebody looks at that and they're like, oh, that's a lot to learn. Is what I say is if you have a character that you think is going to do these kind of things, do wielding or throw the axe and then charge in, you as the player need to learn how that works. And when you want to do it, we'll deal with it. Like, I don't I don't even know how to do all the advanced actions. Players that do them a lot, uh, like my one player uh, always set spear for charge. He knew all the rules. So he'd be like, I'm setting my spear for charge. So if it worked out, then he'd be like, OK, this is why it works. And and it's easy. I don't think you have to feel like you have to take all the rules in, into yourself. So. I wouldn't worry about that for the advanced combat because there is a, a bit of it, but you don't right. need to know all of it. Yeah. But I think it's, it's the game is also to me flexible enough that if you want to, if you as the player say, propose something to the GM, then uh, there's enough in the rules to, to add that flexibility. It's not like it's, things aren't concrete. And if you, you know, and it, it messes up the game, if you try to do something crazy. Right. So I, I think things totally work. Like I think, like, yeah, there's, there's enough rules so you know, as a GM, you have a pretty good idea, or a referee would be in this game, uh, you have a good idea, like, how you think it should be handled, you know, by the way the rules, if the rule did exist, what it would be, but it's not so rigid that you that you feel like you have to follow exactly the rules. Yeah. Yep. That goes back to that sort of smooth smooth play, right? Um, yeah. Quick play, smooth play, and, and that definitely shows in your, um, in your, your actual plays. Um, so. Oh, thank you. Well, um, also, I, I, I just want to mention, I guess, uh, I guess, sorry, I, I want to mention because I just have it up on my screen. I keep looking at it. One of the things that really drew me to this game, too, was the art. The art in this game is really good, I think. And each new iteration, he keeps adding new artists uh, and changing the style, you know, and with different styles, I should say. And each one adds a little bit of flavor. But uh, some of the original, like, charcoal drawing art in this that was in the first edition, just, it's still my favorite RPG art anywhere. Uh, yeah. Actually, the person that did my Bennett's Keep uh, logo thing is the same person that did a lot of that art. I sought them out because of it. It's so gritty. Oh, nice. Like, I'm looking at the fighter one right now, and, you know, he's there, and he's got plate armor on, he's holding the guy, he chopped off somebody's head. Like, this is some serious stuff, you know? So, yeah, yeah the art like, is another thing. <laughs> yeah, I would say, like, uh, I, I definitely know, like, when a player that was kind of new to Hyperborea that played in one of my games when he was looking through the book, and he saw the, the you know, that one... Um, picture with the assassin standing over the the person that they yes. just killed he's like i'm playing an assassin i mean yep, that was <laughs> one of my favorite images in the book it's so good yeah yeah so yeah. Right, so it's it's very it's inspirational and evocative and it really like you said draws you into the game i like it's like it has a nice gritty flavor um and then some of the the three panel things like one of my favorite is on the um the player's guide in second edition that when they're fighting the uh the snake men and the giant snake <laughs> Uh, the iconic heroes. Yes. Um, that's such a cool piece. Uh, I wish they make a T-shirt out of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on, uh, Jeff. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know we've tried to convince you, and hopefully, we've done a fantastic job. Especially Daniel, oh, yeah. not so much me, but especially <laughs> Daniel of convincing you to go out there and find a table to to join uh, Hyperborea and play. Um, and if you're so inspired and inclined, it, they're definitely wonderful pieces of of art um in 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 the books themselves the uh you know they're just really actually i would say they're even even the adventures are laid out pretty well very classic uh classic style like a like a, a, a trifold you know module type style that we we so loved and grew up with um you know they hark they give you that nostalgia uh, they have the maps on the on the panels or tables and and they're organized really well and, and something actually uh, that reminds me when I'm reading the modules, you know, sometimes you have box text everywhere and a lot of the more recent or newer products, uh, maybe that came about with second edition. But but what I like is um, in the modules when they just have a place that uh, that you want, you need to describe as a, as a referee, they have like just like um, kind of tags for them. And then you as a referee can expand upon that and you can, you know, be creative with it and dive into it as much as you want, which I think again goes back to the uh, the flavorful flexibility. I would say that this game has. Yeah, I guess one more thing because uh, I, I meant to to, to say this uh, before, and you just made when you're talking about that, it made sense to me. You said the the way that the book is written is it feels like an older book, like and I don't in in, in all the best ways. Like Jeffrey uses like kind of language that's 
reminiscent of some of this weird fiction and stuff. So it's written in a very kind of, uh, the book feels like something that like uh, older, but in a good way, like not Gygaxi and you don't know what's going on, but like, you know, words that sometimes you have to pause for a second and be like, huh? Oh, <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff. And I, I love that. I love the, I love reading the book. It's actually a joy to read the book. Uh, which a I don't get with a lot of feel, right? Maybe a, a Yeah, it has a literary feel. feel. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Very, very yeah. sophisticated language. You, you know, maybe yeah. you have to use a thesaurus to look up what that yeah. word means. But, you know, th that's exactly how, to me, Lovecraft, Smith, Howard, yep. Merritt, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. that's, sometimes you got to look up these weird words in the book. Um, yeah, no, and, and book, I think and that, is, that is a feature. Cool. A feature, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a feature. Um, you feel, yeah, you feel like uh, I guess um, educated uh, while you read this book. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks, Daniel. It's, it's, um, it's, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say, yeah, it's exactly. It just, it just has a different feel. I, I can't think of another RPG that like has writing like that that just feels like like you're actually reading the type of fiction that it emulates. So, to me, I, I think it just works really well. It's not dry, I guess, is the way to say it. Yeah. yeah well, um, I hope, like we, like I said, we've convinced you. So I'm going to let Daniel uh, have his final thoughts on, you know, final thoughts. What, the final, why you should be playing Hyperborea. Okay, sure. So uh, I think that if you are into fantasy and you're into sword and sorcery, but you're not necessarily wanting to focus on what I think is kind of popular in some areas, like very grimdark, like you want to play in a game where your heroes can still really be heroes they don't have to be, but they can be, but still fight like just amazing odds. And, uh, and a lot of, uh, a good, um, we'll say a world that's fleshed out enough that you understand it, but not so much that you feel like you have to look in the book to, to riff on it. Then I think this is a really good option for a fantasy game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I echo those sentiments that, that Daniel just uh, said very eloquently. Um, this is a, a game that like I, I always want to get to the table when I find the players to do it, uh, and you know, like I, like I said, it's it's been a it's been a backup game for us when people can't show up because we can with two people you can just play. It's pretty flexible that way, but but it seems like it's creeping up to become uh, the main focus, and I really am excited um, to to see how this uh, Shadows Out of Vinland campaign goes. It sounds so, really cool. Yeah, so thank you very much, Daniel, um, for your time and for really discussing a game we both really love, Hyperborea, with me. For sure, anytime. All right.